0: Well, good morning, Mission Church. Um, As always, it is a joy to be with you. It's a joy to be with family. And I'm just grateful to have this opportunity to be with you this morning. And it's an especially uh, more unique joy to be with you and to share God's word with you this morning as the Lord has laid it upon my heart. And though it be a great joy to be with you, however, I am standing before you somewhat convinced and concerned. I am convinced and concerned that many Christians today living in our culture live out their Christian lives in a very weakened state. They have succumbed to the attacks of the enemy and for the most part been rendered weak and impotent. As a result of this weakened state, many Christians experience a loss of joy their walk with the Lord these same Christians they they their witness in the lost world is diminished and worse yet God's glory is blurred now you may ask Todd how can you prove that how can you make such an indictment and make such a broad stroke and by all means that isn't meant to encapsulate every Christian that there is but I think that there is reason for concern there but my response to that question would be simply this I've been in places in this world where I have witnessed and been around Christians that would just blow your mind I've been with Christians in this world where I stand before them and all I can say is what that man said to Jesus I believe help my unbelief and my faith is seems so very small in those moments now with that said honestly it makes my my faith I'm ashamed of my faith many times and I feel very weak myself. And so much of the sermon is pointed right here to me. But their boldness in the face of persecution is absolutely astounding. And their willingness to obey God's word is absolutely riveting. And their desire to share God's word with a lost and dying world is nothing less than amazing. Now, if I offended you already in the first couple moments of this sermon I would challenge you to do this go out in the world find ten Christians and ask them ask them some simple questions ask them to ask them when's the last time that you shared your faith with someone who did not believe ask those Christians in our culture ask them You know, when was the last time that you were faced with a hard truth of God's word that required obedience? And see what the response is. Ask them, when was the last time that you were persecuted for sharing your faith and for simply being a Christian? If you ask those questions, I'm quite confident that it will help illustrate my point that many of us, including me, are living in a weakened state in our Christian life, and it is not the life that God intends for us to live. Now, granted, we could spend an enormous amount of time dissecting and analyzing why that is the case, why so many are living in a weakened state, but that wouldn't be the focus of the text today. The focus of the text today is how can we be strong, right? How can we be strengthened in the Lord? Now, thankfully, in the text today, Paul, he gives us these examples in the text. In the text, he will give us some insight into that. Now, just to give context, it's always important to understand context, 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 context. Today, we are in Ephesians 3, and we're finishing up the chapter. Now, as has been stated many times In Ephesians, you can take a line, and you can draw it right down the middle of Ephesians in chapter three and four. The first half of Ephesians is very doctrinal. The last half of Ephesians is very duty-oriented. It's a precept and practice. And very specifically today, our text is somewhat of that connector piece that connects the locomotive to the rest of the train cars of the train. And so it really connects that peace that goes from doctrine to duty and precept to practice. And in the text today, we see Paul praying for the Ephesian believers. He wants them to get it. He wants them to get what their identity is in Christ. He wants them to understand who they are. And he is praying for their strength so that they can understand God's love. But no doubt, these Ephesian believers were probably in somewhat of a weakened state themselves, if you think about the context. Because these Ephesians believers, from an external perspective, they were likely facing attacks and enemies from an outside world. If you just go back to the uh, founding of the uh, Ephesian church there in Ephesus, As they came to saving faith, what were they doing? As we read about in Acts, they began burning their idols. The town became in an uproar because of what was happening there. Then also, you can understand that when people truly seek to live a righteous life, as Paul makes very clear, you're going to face persecution. It's inevitable. From an internal perspective, we are quite confident that there was... Somewhat going on there, somewhat weakness and the fact that from an internal perspective, Paul was we read how Paul was on his way to Jerusalem and he stops by and speaks to the Ephesian elders. He doesn't go all the way into Ephesus but Ephesus, but he wants to speak to the elders at Ephesus and he warns them that from within you fierce wolves are gonna come, not sparing the flock. so we can understand that there were likely false teachers there among them there at Ephesus. Then also, in 1 Corinthians 16, 8, 9, to illustrate the internal uh, challenges there, Paul says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Then also we can understand from the general context of the book of Ephesians, it's somewhat polemical. Polemical in the fact that they were Paul was writing likely to correct error in many cases. He was writing to correct some things that were not right. And so we know that there were some internal challenges going on there. But we just get the fact that maybe they were in a weakened state. And Paul is praying for their strength. Now, this strength is a strength that comes from God and God alone. And when you and I so often think of strength, we think of tying up our bootstraps, pulling them up, and gritting it out, and by our own sheer will, we will be strengthened. But that's not what we're looking at today in God's word. Godly strength, as we will see, is gonna have somewhat of a domino effect to it, where one thing leads to another, and then another, and then another, and then finally, a grand crescendo at the end. Now for you, those of you who know me, you know that I'm somewhat uh, type A in the fact that I like an alliteration of text, and I like to bullet point things, but this morning I don't have so much of that. But what I do have is the outline that Paul lays out for us, but in the text today, we're going to see these things. We're going to see the necessity of prayer, we're going to see the need for strength, the enabling to comprehend, being filled, and glory to God. So, if you would, let me pray one more time before we dive into the text. Lord Jesus, I am extremely humbled and extremely grateful to be here this morning. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we dive into your word, that the Holy Spirit would just go before us. The Holy Spirit would open our eyes, would open our ears. And may we have hearts, Lord God, that are humble before you, and may we be teachable. Lord Jesus, may the text be preached faithfully this morning to your honor, to your glory. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so the first thing that we see in the text today is the necessity of prayer. Verse 14 states, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named." So the first thing that we see if we are to be strengthened with a godly strength is the need for prayer. And it is imperative to understand that it all begins with prayer, is it not? In order for us to do the impossible and to comprehend the incomprehensible love of God, We must be a people of prayer. We must bow our knees before the Father and pray for the spiritual strength. Now, all throughout Scripture, we see the necessity of prayer all throughout Scripture. Because God not only ordains the end, but he ordains the means by which his will is done. You know, earlier in Ephesians, we saw somewhat of a similar text in Ephesians 1, 15 through 17. Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So we already see Paul is just praying this whole First three chapters is somewhat of a praise and worship and prayer towards God and His saints. Then in Colossians 1 9 through 11, Paul says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy and then later in the book of Ephesians in chapter 6 we're going to read about spiritual warfare and as we read Through spiritual warfare, Paul is giving us many tools for warfare, many of which are defensive tools and one of which is offensive, but Paul speaks of the helmet and the shield and the belt and the boots, and then finally the Word of God being the sword. However, after every one of those great truths and every one of those weapons and uh, tools for warfare, Paul just simply says, pray. (laughs) He just pray at all times. In Ephesians 6 18, Paul says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And then also, thinking of the necessity of prayer, consider this. In the Gospels, we see Jesus with the disciples. And the disciples witness Jesus calm storms, they witness Jesus feed multitudes. They witnessed Jesus heal people and even raise them from the dead. However, not once do we read of how the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, teach me how to heal people. Jesus, teach me how to make bread out of nothing. We never see the disciples ask Jesus, teach me how to raise people from the dead. We don't read that. But what we do read is the disciples ask Jesus, teach us, how to pray then in Acts 13 as Paul and Bartimus are gathered there with the church in Antioch they are doing what they are praying and it is as they are praying the Holy Spirit comes upon them in a unique way and sends them out on the first missionary journey And so we see the necessity of prayer there Prayer is as essential to the Christian as air, and it should be as natural as breathing. And we are, as Paul says, to do it without ceasing. The necessity of prayer is that the fact that we are completely and totally dependent upon God in everything we do, every breath that we take, every moment that we spend in our lives. We are to do it and to live it. In complete dependence upon God. You know, and as we see very specifically here, Paul cries out to the Father. And Jesus, as he taught the disciples how to pray, he says, Our Father who art in heaven. Now, granted, we have the liberty and privilege to pray to each member of the Trinity, whether it be the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. But there's an important truth here that we need not overlook the truth that Christianity is relational. Every religion in this world, every other religion, they they have no concept of a relationship with the God of the universe. And to consider God our Father in many religions is downright blasphemous. And so we must get and must not overlook the fact that we as Christians are in a relationship With the father so in order to be strengthened and to live the life that God would have us to live as his followers and as his sons and daughters we must be a people of prayer next we read about the need for strength the need for strength tells us in verse 16 Paul says that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, being strengthened is a common theme in scripture, as we well know, as you read in Joshua, be strong and courageous. Then in Colossians 1.11, we read, Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. 2 Timothy 2.1, as Paul is there in the Mamertine prison in Rome, awaiting his execution, Paul tells Timothy, he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13.9 says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. However, what we must realize is that strength lies within us. Why? Because God is within us. God is in us. And if we have God, we don't just have some of him. We have all of him, dear friends. Paul wants these Ephesian believers to get this. He wants them to understand that they have been lavishly, And overwhelmingly loved by God. He wants them to understand that they are rich. He says, the riches of his glory. And so if you are a Christian here this morning, regardless of what what you have in your wallet, your bank account, or your 401k, you are rich. And you are rich beyond measure. Rich beyond measure. And so, unfortunately, they weren't understanding this. Unfortunately, so many Christians today, they are rich and they don't even know it. And they sure don't live like it. Tim Keller, he makes an analogy. He says, imagine you get a notice that someone left you some money, but for various reasons, you assume it was a very modest amount. You get busy. You don't get around even to checking on it for a while. Finally... You do so and are thunderstruck to discover it was a fortune. You had not been doing anything about it. You were actually rich, but had been living poor. Unfortunately, that's how many of us live today. We are rich. Rich beyond measure because we don't just have some of God. We have all of God. Yet, unfortunately, we live live as if we are poor. And Paul says, Wants these Ephesian believers to avoid this mistake, and by extension, he wants us to avoid that fatal mistake. Now, John MacArthur he states, Spiritual power, i.e., strength, is a mark of every Christian who submits to the Word of God in his Spirit. It is not reserved for some special class of Christians, but for all those who discipline their minds and spirits to the study of the Word to understand it, and to live by it, to live by it. So, dear friends, we have everything we need to be strong. As Paul is praying this prayer, we have the Spirit within our inner being, within us, bearing witness to the outer testimony of God's Word. Within us, the Spirit is giving testimony to that Word so the question is what are we doing with the word what are we doing with the spirit of god we need to understand that there are not varying degrees of christians okay you were either a christian or you are not there are by all means uh, a process in our sanctification. And as we grow in our walk with the Lord, we will certainly see a growth process and a trajectory upwards towards God. So really there's three questions that we need to ask. Do you want to be strong? Do you desire to be strong? Are you someone who would say, God, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you desire that? You know, many people, unfortunately, I believe, are okay with being weak. They're okay with living their Christian life out in a weakened state. They've got their ticket punched. Hell is no longer a reality to them. They have their hope in heaven, which is great. But for them, they're fine with living in a weakened state. Yes, by all means, if we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are justified. The penalty of that sin has been removed. However, dear friends, there's much more to the Christian life than simply not going to hell. As stated earlier, the Christian life is about a relationship with the God of the universe. The God of the universe. We have a Father in heaven who has made us sons and daughters of him it is a relationship number 2 are you willing to submit are you willing to submit to god's word in his spirit are you willing to submit your will and your desires to god's desires into his will are you willing to do that are you willing to forsake the things of this world? And this idea of becoming weak and by submitting to God's word, this paradox of losing, winning by losing and being strong by being weak is what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12.9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So when we become weak by submitting to God's word and submitting to his will, that's when we are the most strong. That's when we are the most strong. Third question is, Is are you willing to commit? So are you willing to submit and are you willing to commit? Are you willing to commit yourself to forsaking the things of the world? To Committing yourself to forsaking the things that may be good things, but they're not the best things. Are you willing to do that? You know earlier this year uh, we exercised abstaining from excessive use of uh, electronics and iPads and TV and so forth and I think for many people was very telling of, of how much those things consume our lives. I know it was for me. And if you look at that, there's nothing wrong with an iPad or a TV, inherently. But I think we would all agree that there's a valuable lesson learned in that, that those are not the best things. We must be committed to seeking the best things, the things that bring God the most glory. And so we must be willing to submit to God's word. We must be willing to commit to... The best things. The next thing that we read in the text is the enabling to comprehend. Verse 17 says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth? And to know the love of Christ." that surpasses knowledge. So the result of being strengthened is not to just be strong. There's a purpose behind it. And the purpose is to comprehend God's love. And it's a comprehension that could be best described as an apprehension or a taking a hold of. And please hear me out. Look in the text. It is accessible to all the saints. All the saints. As stated earlier, there are no different degrees of a Christian. Okay? You are either Christian or you are not. It's not just for a select few, it is for all the saints. If we will commit to and submit to God's Word. If Christ can dwell, or better yet, make his home in your hearts, you can be strengthened to comprehend this love. A love that Paul describes as, as infinitely wide and long and high and deep. And this is why Paul is praying for their strength. He wants them to get it. He wants them to understand who they are in Christ and to understand God's love. Romans eight thirty eight and 39, we all know this. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, many times in the church, we make ourselves the center of God's love. It's a mistake that many people make. We make ourselves as ones that we are just, we're just so special. And so we're the center and God revolves around us. That's not what scripture would tell us, though. So what kind of love is this? What kind of love is this that we're speaking of here? What we must understand is in the day of Paul, in the Greek language, there are different uses of, or different words for the word love as we translate it today. One word for love in the Greek language is phileo, which is where we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phileo is a love that is called out of one's own heart as a response to the pleasure one takes in the object. It involves giving as well as receiving, but when it is greatly strained it can collapse in a crisis. Simply put, it is conditional. Next, there is storge love, and storge love is a natural affection or natural obligation that one would have towards a family member, a wife, uh, you know, a daughter, a uh, uncle, a dog. And then there is eros. Eros is where we get the word erotic love. Eros is a love of passion and overmastering passion that seizes and absorbs itself into the mind. The basic idea is self-satisfaction. Though Eros is directed towards another person or another thing, it actually has itself in mind. I love you because you make me happy. And then finally, there is agape love. As many know and have heard this word before, what is agape love? Agape love is called out of one's own heart, by the preciousness of the object love. Its value, the value of that object is because I have made it valuable. Agape love is the noblest word for love in the Greek language. Agape love is not kindled by the merit or worth of the object, but it originated in its own God-given nature. It delights in giving. This love keeps on loving even when the love One is, listen to this, unresponsive, unkind, unlovable, and unworthy. This is unconditional love. This is unconditional love. Agape love desires only the good of the one loved. And this is the love that Paul is speaking of here this is the love that is most often used when it refers to God's love. God's love is an agape love. And this is the love that the world does not know nor understand. It's a love that says, I choose to love you despite who you are. It is a love that says, I choose to love you despite what you've done to me, how you've hurt me, And how you have spoken unkind words to me, I choose to love you. Guys, think about this. If we as Christians would live this out, how many marriages, how many marriages would be saved from divorce if agape love was present and exercised? think about that how many love or how many marriages would be safe from the terrible thing of divorce if agape love was present and exercised how many friendships would be renewed if agape love was present and exercised how many churches would be spared from division and disunity if christians of all people would say ah lay down my right to be right for your sake. I choose to love you. However, guys, unfortunately, I think many Christians want to live out their life as if they're loving with a phileo love or a storge love. And the fact that I love you because you make me happy. It's conditional, right? They live out their lives Because you make me happy. That's the worth. It's tragic. However, what we must understand is that God has loved us with an agape love. Why? Because we have been unresponsive, unkind, and unlovable, and unworthy towards God. But God chose to love us way before we chose to love him. Right, First John four nineteen says we love because he first loved us. Romans five eight states that God shows his love for us in that what while while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Agape love, agape love. So when by prayer we are strengthened and able to comprehend god's agape love when we're strengthening to understand that and we get it guess what we're going to be strengthened even more because what happens when you understand that what do you do you fall to your knees you fall to your knees in gratitude it begins with prayer then we're enabled to be we're strengthened then we're enabled to understand and then we fall right back down on our knees in prayer and praise and worship and then it just gets greater and greater and greater. So Paul wants these Ephesian believers to know the love of Christ. And don't gloss over that word know there. The word know is epignosko, epigonosco. And that is an experiential know. It is the type of know that a man has for his wife. It is an intimate knowledge. It is not a knowledge of just simply head knowledge or hearsay. It is an intimate knowledge. Simply put, Paul wants the Ephesians, and by extension to us, to understand and to have a deep abiding relationship with God. And that can only be done through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So do you have that knowledge today? Do you know him? Do you intimately know the creator of the universe? Do you intimately know him? And does he intimately know you? We know for sure because God is all-knowing that he knows you. But does he intimately know you? Next, we read of being filled. Verse 19b states that you may be filled with with all the fullness of God, when we are strengthened by prayer to comprehend God's agape love, we will then be filled with the fullness of God. As we read in Scripture, being filled is another common theme in uh, Ephesians five and eighteen. Later, we're going to read about uh, being filled with the Spirit of God and not given to drunkenness and debauchery. And then in Romans 5, uh, similar to being filled as I think you would agree, being poured. uh, Romans 5, 5, Paul states, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then in Titus 3, 5 through 6, states, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, there's that word again, richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior. And in each case of being filled with the Spirit of God, it is in the present passive imperative. And for those of you who are not geeks like me, you're wondering, what does that mean? Simply put, it could be translated, be being constantly filled. And there's three ideas here. Number one, we're passive in this. We're passive. Much like a sail is passive in a sailboat, we're passive. The sail is in the air. The wind fills that sail and moves that sailboat forward. The wind is the active agent. The sail only captures the wind, right? And so with us, it's much the same way. We must get ourselves up with study of prayer and commitment to God's word and submitting to his word. We get ourselves up. But the Holy Spirit is the one that moves us forward. We're passive in this. Number two, It happens. uh, It's to happen constantly and without ceasing. The continuous action of this is is of vital importance, and we cannot overlook it. In that every moment of every day, we are to be submitting to God's word. We are to be submitting to His Spirit working within us. And so, as we go throughout our day, and as we are encountering situations, we're we're given an opportunity to make a choice. We're given an opportunity. To make a decision to yield to God's spirit within us that says, don't do that or do that. And as we submit to that and as we yield to his working in our hearts, we're going to grow strong. And it's to happen every moment of every day. Now dear friends, hear me out when I say this. You cannot show up here on Sunday morning and get filled to fill your tank, and then go throughout the rest of the week and not, t- not touch God's word, not be in prayer, and expect to be living out the Christian life that God would have you to live, and then come back here on Sunday and get filled again. It doesn't work that way, guys. It's every moment of every day. We are to constantly be filled with the Spirit. And then finally, it's a command. It's a command. It is an imperative. It is an imperative. It is a command that we are to be filled with the fullness of God. And to do otherwise is what? Sin. It's sin. We must understand that. Now, parsing out this verb and explaining this verb certainly tells us the why and the how, but what about the what? What does it mean for our hearts to be filled with the Spirit and His fullness? One commentator says this, We must not think of the Holy Spirit filling our hearts as water, a bottle, or air, a vacuum, or a bushel of oats, an empty basket. The Holy Spirit is a substance, is not a substance, to fill an empty receptacle. He is a person who is to control another person, the believer. He does not fill a Christian's life with himself. He simply controls that person. That's the idea here. And when the Bible speaks of the heart, we must always understand that it is speaking of the will, the the reason, and the emotions, right? Thus, the Holy Spirit must have control over our choices, our thinking, and finally, our emotions. Everything that we think, say, and do is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. We are prisoners. Now, in our MC a couple weeks ago, uh, Miss uh, Kathy had a great analogy, thinking about being a prisoner. As a prisoner of Christ, we are bound to him. We, we, we have, our freedom is very small. We, he controls every aspect of our lives. We get If you're a prisoner, you can do this when he says you do this. You can eat when he says to eat. You can play when he says to play. He controls every aspect of our lives, and that's the idea here. That's the idea. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And to understand this helps us take something that is that could be very subjective to something that is very objective. Right? Many people will take this and think that being filled with the Spirit is uh, simply an emotional experience. And certainly there are emotions that come with that, but it's much more than that. That is simply the fruit. The root is being controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so when we begin to comprehend the incomprehensible love of God, we will be filled by and controlled by God's Spirit. And if we're controlled by him, he no doubt is going to lead us where he wants us to go. And he will control us within our inner being. He will consume us and control us in every aspect of our lives. And it will create create oneness within us. In John 17, we read about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's there, uh, what we would consider the holy of holies, as Jesus is praying to the Father. And so often in that text and in that instance, we see Jesus praying for our unity that may all be one, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus is praying for unity. And so when we are filled with the Spirit of God, And when we collectively are filled with the Spirit of God, we will be one. And when that is the case, dear friends, with that unity we are a powerful witness to a lost and dying world around us, are we not? A world that has no comprehension of what agape love is. So when we understand and comprehend God's love and we exhibit that amongst ourselves and unity is within us, we're going to be a powerful witness in the world. And in that high priestly prayer, Jesus says uh, that the world may know that God sent Jesus, sent me, and has loved us even as he loved Jesus because we are in Jesus. The world knows that Jesus is the Christ because of what we do in this world and how we live and how we have hope. And having that fullness of God is what makes that possible and then finally to the glory of God. Verse 20, Paul says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power and work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so at this point, we may have a temptation to think that this is about us. Once again, when you when you're learning about the love of God and the joy that we can have in this relationship with him, we, we're going to, once again, start thinking about ourselves and become the center, but it's not. It's about God. It's about him. It's about his glory. The purpose of being strengthened is God's glory. And so Paul is, once again, he is praying for these Ephesian believers to be strengthened strengthen to understand and comprehend God's incomprehensible love so that we, in response to that, will do what? We will fall right back down our knees in prayer and thanksgiving and giving glory to God all the more. And the world sees that. And then, as we would say, we're worshiping Jesus, making disciples and multiplying, and then God's glory grows all the more. And so, this is to be done before the Father in heaven and on earth, in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. You're thinking about the Lord's Prayer once again. Jesus says, Our Father who art in heaven, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's going on in heaven right now? God's being worshipped. God's being praised. He's being glorified. The glory of God is the chief in the man. That is our purpose. That is why we were created, lest we forget that. God did not create us because he needed a friend, because he was lonely. No, he was perfectly content within the Trinity. He had that relationship. There was a love relationship there from eternity past. He created us to put on display to the universe his glory. And we, being the pinnacle of his creation, should therefore bring him the most glory, should we not? A rock can certainly bring God glory. But we, being the pinnacle of his creation, should bring him all the more glory. And his bride, his church, should bring him even more glory. Because we, being a people who are saved by grace, display God's goodness. His graciousness, His mercy, and the universe sees it. The angels see it, and it blows their minds, it blows their minds. We talked about that last week in our MC of the rulers and authorities in heaven in the, in the previous text. We dissected that a little bit and just understanding that, you know, that may refer to the angels. And the angels look at us, and they marvel. They, 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 they can't understand grace like we can. And so, we, the church, are to bring God the most glory. And so, when we live our lives for our glory, friends, when we live it for our glory and our good, we're not fulfilling our purpose in life. When we do that, we're doing something very sinful. We're worshiping ourselves, breaking the first commandment, we're worshiping an idol. Unfortunately, that happens so often. We are seeking our glory in things we're seeking our fame rather than God's and we need to repent of this and we need to seek God's forgiveness and seek the greatest good of all God's glory you know John Piper he states that uh, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him and we being the pinnacle of that creation should bring him the most glory we should enjoy him the most of all creation He should be our highest pleasure and our greatest treasure. This is the great commandment, is it not? To love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and might. He is to control us, he's to fill us, and we're to give him praise and worship. And So this, dear friends, is the only way we're going to live out the Christian life that God would have us to live. This is the only way we're going to be strengthened and to glorify him. So in conclusion today, I just want to ask a couple questions. If you are an unbeliever here, if you are someone that could be defined as not having that relationship with God, I want to ask you, do you want that? Do you seek to have a relationship with God? Or do you just know of him? You've heard a lot about a relationship this morning. Do you want a relationship with God? Because if there's only one way that that can happen. Through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so you cannot begin to comprehend. You can't begin to even understand this love. You can't begin to understand it. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus, you can't understand what Paul's talking about here. And it's only through Jesus that one can understand that. Number two, if you're a believer here this morning and you're in a weakened state, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you as Paul prayed for the Ephesian believers. I pray that you would be strengthened. I pray that God would do a work in your life. And that he would make his home in your hearts john 14 23 jesus states if anyone loves me he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him may jesus make his home in your heart may he be welcome there may he be welcome there and as a result of all of this your hearts would be filled and that you would receive the greatest joy of all, God himself. God himself, the greatest joy of all. And so I pray that you would understand who you are in Christ because as we continue through the book of Ephesians, we're going to be prompted with a lot of decisions. We're going to be prompted to obey or disobey, especially when we're looking at husbands and wives and children and parents. We're going to be faced to either obey or disobey. These first three chapters are so crucial because if we do not understand them, the motives are going to be wrong here. And so I, like Paul, want us all to understand who we are in Christ. We are a people that God has chosen. We are a people that God has pursued, a people that God has died on the cross for us. Because he chose to love us, despite ourselves. Help us, God, understand this. Because if we get this, if we understand this, it will be a joy, it will be a joy later on for a husband and a wife to live in a covenant relationship with joy, even though it can be difficult and even though it can be hard. That husband and wife can joyfully reflect God's character in living out agape love, an employee, employer, and so forth. And so may we know who we are in Christ today. We are a people that God has overwhelmingly, abundantly, lavishly loved. He has loved the unlovable. And may that strengthen us. May our identity in Christ strengthen us. Let's pray.